people agree upon. And he's saying, well, no, you got it from somewhere. And what we want to do is we want to take the gift and then ignore the giver. You know, we, we say, okay, thank you very much, Christianity, for these values, which we like. Now we'll try to forget where they came from so we can act like we invented them. Basically, what, what you're doing is you're saying, well, I like the, the house, I just don't like the foundation. And so what, what, that's what people do today. They say, there's these Christian values over here that make me feel good, so I'm going to accept those. But then I'm going to reject the deeper Christian principles upon which they're based. Well, you can do that, you know? I mean, nobody's really going to call you on the carpet, but really what you're doing is you're believing in things that have no grounding for you, and you may even be being inconsistent. G.K. Chesterton talks about this. He says he observed uh, a man going to a political meeting and making a speech passionately protesting against the natives of the Congo being treated as beasts, and then putting his silk hat on his head and his umbrella under his arm, and walking hurriedly down the street to a meeting of scientists where he delivers an elaborate lecture to prove that they are beasts. Chesterton says, you you can have your values, but if you reject the Christian principles on which they're based, you're being inconsistent. You're kind of making a fool of yourself because Christianity said something different. Christianity said man, man is not a beast. Men and women are made in the image of God. And Jacques Martin points out that idea changed the world. And it changed your world. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you claim Christian faith for yourself or not, it's your inheritance. It created the world that you live in and you benefit from. That's the first point of the the sermon. The first area of cultural influence on Western civilization was it comes to morally and socially. Let's move on to, to section number two. Secondly, this morning, first morally and socially, secondly, politically and economically. The second big area where you see Christianity shape Western civilization is politically and economically. One of the great questions of the last 500 years is why democracy and free market capitalism were able to be successfully established in 1776 when they hadn't been able to up to that point. There's this question of why it worked, why it took. And what the, many of the founding fathers said is the same thing that observers of the subsequent generation said. is the same thing that plenty of, of current academic treatments have said, which is that the only reason it worked is because of Christianity. In 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, the, the French historian, published his famous two-volume work, Democracy, America. So this is only 50 years or so after the American founding. De Tocqueville comes over and studies, and he lives here for several years, tries to figure out what's going on. He's absolutely fascinated by the American system. He's absolutely fascinated by democracy and the fact that it actually works. And the other thing he's absolutely fascinated by is how everybody's a religious nut. He can't believe how religious everybody is. He can't believe how strong Christianity is, how it pervades every institution. And what he argues is, that's why it's working. The, the strength of the Christian faith among the people is, is why it's working, which is, it wouldn't have surprised the founders at all, because it's the same thing the founders said. If you go back and read the founders, what you notice is that they are extremely worried about democracy and capitalism being a complete disaster. 
you know, that's called the American experiment for a reason. Nobody thought it could work. And even the, the founders who were advocating for it and trying to make it happen, even them, they had serious doubts. And the only thing that gave them comfort, the only thing that they hung their hope on was this idea of the Christianity of the people. Even guys that, that weren't Christians themselves, like Jefferson, still they put their hope in Christianity, which is where the whole idea of, of uh, separation of church and state comes from. The reason the founders were so adamant about separation of church and state is the exact opposite of the reason people think. It, it wasn't to keep the church out of the government. It was to keep the government out of the church so that the church could remain strong, so that the church could remain a check on democracy and capitalism. Because what they knew for sure is that unrestrained capitalism would self-implode and that unrestrained democracy would devolve into mob rule and that the whole thing would become a disaster. And Adam Smith says the exact same thing. Remember, Wealth of Nations comes out the same year as the Declaration of Independence, comes out in 1776. And Adam Smith is at great pains to say, look, this whole thing of the invisible hand and laissez-faire, it only works if people feel that they are personally accountable to God. Because otherwise, this is a system which enables the strong to eat the weak, which is exactly what you see happening today. You know, it's an interesting time to, to be talking about how Christianity gave us our political and our economic system because nobody, people have never been more down on our political and economic system than they are right now. They feel like the political system is broken. They feel like the economic system is broken. All of this inequality. Why has that happened? Well, it's nothing more and nothing less than Christians failing to be Christians. So, for example, on the economic side, if you have a, a Christian businessman or a Christian banker who says, I'm just going to absolutely maximize my profits regardless of whether it adversely affects all of these other innocent parties, well, then people are going to get hurt. And when people get hurt, then the state's going to come in and say, we've got to pass regulations. And the regulations are always imperfect. They always screw things up. There's no such thing as a perfect law. You have all these unintended negative side effects of the regulation. And so then the free market types say, well, see, look, it's the state's fault. The state intervened. The state messed things up. No, it's your fault because you prove you weren't morally and spiritually mature enough to handle the freedom that was given to you. You were given this chance, and you blew it, and you used it to screw somebody else over. And so what choice does the state have at that point but to come in and play nanny? See what's happening? When Christians abdicate Christian principles, the whole system breaks because Christianity was one of the variables that the founders were counting on when they drew up the equation. And if you remove that variable, the equation doesn't work anymore. The same thing politically. You know, if you look at this, this election, this presidential election, um, if, if exit polls are reliable, one of the things that's happened over the last five months is that Christians who are registered to vote in their state's Republican primaries have voted for Donald Trump. There's only one way that that can happen, and is that, that's if you take your Christianity and put it on a shelf. And you say, well, politics doesn't have anything to do with my Christian faith. If that happens, the whole thing goes to hell. 
people don't people forget that in the history of ideas most people for most of world history have said democracy is a terrible idea it will not work and the reason they said it would not work is because they said well what's what's to stop the people from being fooled what's to stop the people's fears from being preyed upon what's to stop them from electing a monster or a buffoon the thing that keeps that from happening is the churches the churches are the check against that and if the churches fall down then the whole thing falls apart so that's the second section of the sermon, is the way that Christianity has shaped our, our political and our economic system. It's the only thing that enabled it to work. And if Christians would be Christians again, if Christians would cling to their Christian principles again, then what that would enable is the freest, most just, most dynamic, most productive political and economic system the world has ever seen to start working again. Third and finally this morning, the third place you see this is intellectually and artistically, morally and socially, politically and economically. The third one is intellectually and artistically. And it's crazy because you you sometimes see Christianity as branded as anti-intellectual, anti-ideas, closed-minded, even, you know, like a, a censorship mechanism. But it's just not the case. One of my favorite classes in law school was this class ideas of the first amendment it was taught by this guy vincent blasey who's like the the top first amendment scholar in the u.s and the the idea behind the class was let's look at the the philosophical foundations of free speech where do we get the idea of free speech to begin with you go back to the century before the american founding in the 1600s the greatest advocate for free speech is john milton the christian the great poet who wrote paradise lost and he argues for free speech on christian principles Christianity has been the greatest source of inquiry, of discovery, of pushing for ideas that the world has ever seen. 100 of the first 110 universities founded in this country were founded explicitly for the spread of the Christian gospel. If you go back and and look at uh, the original mottos of the Ivy League schools, or even just the current mottos of the Ivy League schools, uh, Columbia, I think, still is in thy light we shall see the light. Brown is in God, we hope. Princeton is under God's protection, she flourishes. Or Harvard, Harvard's the best one. Uh, For a long time, Harvard's motto from 1650 until I can't remember when, their motto was for the glory of Christ. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, They they obviously had to change that. And so they changed it to the, the word that's on the seal that actually even predates the for the glory of Christ, which is veritas. Now the motto of Harvard is veritas Latin. For truth, So that sounds very, you know, ecumenical and secular, but there was this great article in the Harvard Gazette last year, which unpacked the, the fact that for the Puritans who put that word veritas on the seal, they weren't talking about abstract truth. They were talking about the truth, the veritas, as in the way, the truth, and the life. The veritas was specifically a reference to Christ the divine logos, the divine logic, the divine reason. Rodney Stark is this uh, sociologist, uh, leading sociologist who's been in, who was at uh, University of Washington for most of his career. And in 2005, he wrote this book called The Victory of Reason, in which he argues that any success that the West has had, any intellectual progress that the West has made, has been a result of Christianity's love of reason 
of truth because Christ is the truth. And you see that. You see that. We, we see that in all the academic fields. We, we already looked at uh, science a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to review all that, all these great scientists throughout history that have been motivated by their Christian faith. But it's not just science. It's every field. It's, it's literature. You can't even... You can't even understand the Western literary canon without understanding the Bible. If you pick up like a, an annotated edition of Moby Dick, for example, where it's got footnotes, every footnote is just a Bible reference. It's just like, well, for the biblically illiterate among you, here's what he's talking about here. And a lot of our greatest works are just retellings of biblical stories. We already mentioned Milton's Paradise Lost, but all the way up into Steinbeck, East of Eden. So literature has been shaped by Christianity and the Bible. It's science, it's literature, it's philosophy. Who's the greatest philosopher of the post-classical period? Augustine, a Christian theologian. Who's the greatest philosopher of the medieval period? Aquinas, a Christian theologian. Even if you take somebody like Immanuel Kant, the, the arguably the greatest philosopher of the last few hundred years, the most influential ethicist who's ever lived, all he's trying to do is codify and secularize the ethics of Jesus. Science, literature, philosophy. And then when you get to, to art and to music, just forget about it. You know, it, it, Just go. Go to the Met. Go to the second floor of the Met and look around. Who's the most painted subject in history by a factor of 10,000 to 1? You go and, well, there's painting Jesus. Oh, look, there's Jesus. Hey, there's Jesus. What is this, a church? You know, it's just, is there nobody else to paint? There's Michelangelo on Jesus. There's Da Vinci on Jesus. There's Rembrandt on Jesus. So much of the work these guys did, these masters did, was focused on Christ. Musically, same thing. Bach was the worship leader at his church. Most of the, the, the pieces that Bach and Mozart and these guys wrote were sacred music. If you want to say, you know, who's the most painted subject in history? Well, who's the most sung about subject in history? By a ridiculous margin. So let me, let me sum up, not just this section about intellectually and artistically, but let me sum up the first three sections, everything we've been saying so far. And the point is, in all of these areas, whether you claim to be a Christian or not, whether you say thank you to the God of Christianity or not, the world you live in has had all this light shed in it, all of this salt sprinkled on it by Christianity. It is responsible for your morals, for your art, for your music, for your ideas. It is giving you everything good that you have. It's the first three sections of the sermon. But now with the time we have left, as I said, there's going to be a fourth section this morning. And the fourth section is where we need to ask why and how. How did this happen? How did this movement have this much influence? Because it doesn't make sense on paper. So let me, let me quote to you from Rodney Stark, that sociologist I mentioned just a minute ago. And he asked this question. He's speaking about Jesus, and he says, He was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? 
And now in the light of those first three sections, what we're asking is how is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the shaping force of Western civilization? What happened? What everybody agrees about is that Christianity exploded in the first century. One minute, there's, nobody's ever heard of Christianity. The next minute, it is rapidly expanding, taking over the Roman Empire, and they can't stop it. They, they kill all the Christians they can, and they can't stop it. Everybody agrees that Christianity exploded in the first century. The, the question is, well, what was the match? What caused it to explode? It's sort of like the theory of the Big Bang. 99% of physicists agree that the universe exploded from a single point in an instant, that it has been expanding ever since, including up until today, and that everything we see around us can be traced back to that single explosion. Where they get into trouble is in trying to figure out what caused the explosion. It's the same thing with Christianity. Christianity exploded from a single point in the first century. It's been expanding ever since. Most of what we see around us is the result of that explosion. The question is, what caused the explosion? And you can come up with all these convoluted theories. You know, at the remove of 2,000 years, uh, well, this is what I think happened, or this is what I think happened. But what's interesting is, unlike the Big Bang, we have eyewitnesses. And if you go back and look at the eyewitness testimony, and you ask them this question, they would say, well, what do you mean what happened? This guy was dead, and then he came back to life. That's the thrust of the scripture readings you heard this morning from the book of Acts. And what you see when you read the book of Acts is something that surprises people who are, are Christians today, which is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the basic Christian message. It was the main news they were trying to, to spread, which is the opposite of what people say today. What, what the, the theory you'll sometimes hear is, okay, well, he, they, they were adherents of his teachings first, and then maybe they started uh, you know, venerating his death second. And then later, they, they came up with some story about how he had been raised from the dead. Historically, that's exactly the reverse of how it happened. Because they wouldn't have actually cared about his teachings or about his death unless something had happened to make them care. The, the key phrase in the New Testament is good news. They're trying to spread this good news. What's the news? From their perspective, if it was just this guy that had preached some sermons and then gotten executed, there's no news there. There's nothing to spread. In fact, if anything, they would want people to forget about it because they would be embarrassed that they had ever followed him to begin with. But to them, the news, the news that's worth spreading is we all saw him hanging on a cross on Friday. We all saw him buried in a tomb on Saturday. And then on Sunday, he showed up for dinner. And... If that happened, that is news. And if that happened, then all the dominoes fall from there. That's not this later idea that gets tacked on. That's the first idea. That's the first idea. Because from there they say, well, wait a minute. If he, if he raised himself from the dead, maybe he really was God, like he claimed to be. And if he really was God, then maybe we should have been paying more attention to those sermons. Did anybody write those down? And if he really was God, then what's his death about? God died? That's got to be a big deal. That's got to mean something. It all happens from there. To be a Christian in the first century was, it didn't really matter what else you believed except one thing, which is that Jesus died and Jesus was raised again. 
And the reason I'm belaboring this is because I found that this is the hardest thing for modern New Yorkers to believe about Christianity today. You know, this idea of, well, I'm going to follow Jesus' teachings, not, you know, try to, try to live as he advocated I live. Well, that's fine, because then basically you just have a guru, and everybody in New York's got a guru of one sort or another. Even this idea of, uh, you know, I'm going to, like, trust in his death for my forgiveness, even though that's sort of mystical sounding. Well, it's still, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing that offensive to people about that, because you know, whatever works for you, basically. But then when you get to saying, I believe he physically was raised from the dead, that's where people just, they just feel like they can't go there. Because, well, you know, it's, it's like magic, it's like hocus pocus, you know, I have to throw out my reason, you know, so I'm not going to believe that. But my point this morning is that you cannot just say, well, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then move on. Because something happened. Something happened in the first century. Something caused the explosion that, ex- that explains everything we see around us today. So if it's not the resurrection, you have to come up with some other theory. You have to have some other explanation of what you think happened. People say, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection because it feels easier not to believe in it. Well, but what's your other theory? What's your other hypothesis about what did happen that explains not only why this obscure Jewish sect exploded in the first century, but why it has had such tremendous influence since? Because that's the interesting thing about the, the resurrection, is if you do believe in the resurrection, and not only explains as a historical matter what happened in the first century, but it completely explains what's happened since. Because, you know, it's a question of, well, why is Christianity's ideas, why are the ideas of Christianity, the values of Christianity, the principles of Christianity, why have they won out? Is it just because they're the best ideas? Why have they been victorious? If Jesus was raised from the dead, it goes a long way to explaining that. Because what Paul says is, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. What he's saying is, Christianity is not just ideas. The resurrection is not just an event. It is a supernaturally powerful engine. He says in another place, the kingdom of God isn't just about talk, it's about power. And if that's true, if Jesus was raised from the dead and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the church, then it would go a long way toward explaining why the Roman Empire couldn't stop the church, just like they couldn't stop Jesus. They killed Jesus, and all of a sudden he pops back up again. See the same thing with the church. They keep trying to kill the church and just pops some back up again somewhere else. It's like whack-a-mole. The church in the book of Acts, you know, you hit it down one place, and it just pops up somewhere else. Why? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the church. And this idea of it, of it being squished down or hit down one place and then popping up somewhere else, it's an interesting idea to talk about given the last hundred years of history. Because we'll close with this. One of the things that... Um, people might say in response to the first three sections about the influence of Christianity on Western civilization is they might make two objections. They might say, well, first, that's just the West. That's just part of the world. What about the rest of the world? And second, isn't that influence in decline? But the response to both of those objections is the same, which is, well, look at what's happening in the rest of the world today. There's no coincidence that as Christianity starts to decline in Europe, all of a sudden it starts to explode in Africa and in Asia, at a rate that has not been seen since the book of Acts. What's happening? The Spirit's moving on. The Spirit is doing it again, doing it all over again in a new place. And Christianity is going 
to shape those civilizations in the exact same way that it's shaped the West. You know, people ask, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? You know, he said he was going to return. Why hasn't he returned already? But if you look at the way things are playing out, it's very clear that it's just much too soon. It's still happening. This movement he started of spreading salt and light, it's really just beginning. His church, his movement of shaping one continent at a time. Let's pray.